Welcome to the 14th episode of Regulate Tech, and this is a classics episode where we'll look back at one of the classic texts with me, Nikos Berlumblad, and me, Richard Allen. Well, Richard, I think for for us, it's it would be mysterious if somebody said that they hadn't re- you know read anything by Lawrence Lessig, but I do, I'm not sure that a lot of people read Lessig today. I'm not sure that that's sort of part of of the of the diet if you are a, a young up and coming tech policy professional. There's so much else to read, so I'm, I'm not faulting people, but I I think there's some value in going back to these classics. So why why don't you tell us a little bit about who Lawrence Lessig was? Yeah, so, so at the time. I mean, we just need to, I think it's important to put it into sort of time context. So uh, again, very easy to forget this now, but until 1991, the internet was an entirely sort of private academic network. It wasn't, it, it wasn't available for people to use commercially. Um, and then 1991, if you like, the doors were thrown open. And uh, this book, the one that we're going to talk about today, Code, was written in 1999. So, so it's a very early phase when the internet was going from being a kind of boring academic tool, if you like, where, where there, just no, you know, there weren't any issues. It's just a thing that academics use. It's like you don't discuss, I don't know, you know Large Hadron Colliders or <laughs> things that, that are used in academia that are not sort of policy or legal questions, really. And then uh, uh, sort of in that 90s, in the 1990s, the the internet was being opened up and all of these questions arose. And really, uh, Lawrence Lessig, Larry Lessig was one of the first um, legal academics to to actually say, hey, there's something really interesting happening here. There's going to be some really big questions that have to be answered. And and he really brought the, the sort of discipline of somebody who understands in particular, the American legal code. But what's nice about the book is he, he sort of translates it into concepts that I think work everywhere. But he really, really understands U.S. law and takes that and in an academic context w- with a, a bunch of co-collaborators. And if you look at the names of them, many of them have gone on themselves to do great things that the researchers worked on this to really dig in and and perhaps come up for the first time with a uh, a sort of forward-looking analysis and and framework for how the law might be the same or might be different when applied to uh, this internet that was moving from being as say sort of dull academic tool to something that uh, now we know is central to our lives all aspects of our lives Yes, and I think it's relevant also to remember that Lawrence Lessig came to internet law or the question of internet regulation from constitutional law. That was his background. And I think that constitutional law, especially in the US, is this fundamental layer of the stack, if you want, right? So he could see the similarities between law and code, as he goes on to talk about, quite clearly from his constitutional perspective. And I think it matters when you read code to remember, and he points this out at several places too, that he was originally and first and foremost a constitutional scholar and he has gone on to do a lot of work around corruption etc etc when he he left tech policy proper and i think to me when i read code now uh, it's even more obvious to me that this is a constitutional scholar writing about regulation uh, rather than say you know an intellectual property expert or somebody who's an expert in contract law might have approached the the issue completely differently and so, I, I, if we did, if we sort of move to the book, then what what is the world in which this book is written? What's the ontology that underlies what Lawrence Lessig is trying to do here? I mean, I, I I'll, I'll give you a hypothesis. I think he's a dualist still. 
a lot of the early internet theoreticians were dualists. They thought of cyberspace as a separate place that could be protected or uh, attacked or corrupted, and then the real world as a separate place. That dualism, I feel, is is really one of the core precepts in, in Lessig's philosophy. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's right, because I, I think there is this sense, again, as you, as you read through, that um, uh, cyberspace is this wonderful new thing we've created, um, and and he, he interesting actually sort of points out that that the cyber word is uh, is, is interesting because it comes from cybernetics, which itself sort of implies control. So, so um, that there's sort of something about the language he sort of points to. But I still think there's a, a golden thread that runs through of this idea of we've created something new that must be protected, uh, and and you know that almost the, the applying the law and regulation is dangerous. And therefore, the the sort of I think the the intellectual ferment at the time. And we've talked again about John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence in cyberspace. I think that he he has sort of a, absorbed that sort of sense of um, the risk is of people applying regulation to this space and then doing uh, sort of ruining it, spoiling it for everybody um, with this idea that it is a separate space. Uh, and and so I think that is absolutely in the sort of mid nineties, the, the prevailing thinking is, is this sort of, can we create something that is new and different and sits outside? And as we dig into the, to the different forces he applies, I think what, for me, one of the really interesting things is the extent to which, um, uh, people, the public, actually uh, sort of rejected that model and want the law to be applied, uh, uh, you know, to the internet. That there's a sort of classic phrase that people keep using: "What's illegal offline should be illegal online," etc. And the flip side: "What's legal uh, offline should be legal online." We can we can sort of look at both of those, but but the key point being that. I think there was an assumption in the mid '90s that we could somehow create something different, and the danger, the risk, the enemy was applying old school regulation. I think when we sit here in 2021, there's a lot more uh, concern about the lack of applying uh, traditional law to the internet than the fact that it's not there. Yeah, and it and it's strong. I mean, it 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 is perhaps even stronger in, in John Perry Barlow ninety six when he writes the Independence Declaration that we've talked about several times. But but it's strong even in Lessig, and it it then returns later in in one of Lessig's uh, followers, Citrain, when he talks about the future of the internet and how to stop it. There is. In this early tech policy phase, there is this governing macro narrative that almost almost reminds you of Paradise Lost. Yes. <laughs> it's this sense that you know you have a, a pristine virgin territory that is now getting encroached upon by commerce forces, by government forces, etc. And, and and Lessig sort of sets out how he thinks that this new space is going to be regulated because he's moved past Barlow. He doesn't believe anymore that you can set up the boundaries and say, you know, you weary giants of flesh and steel, stay away. He doesn't believe in the Barlowian uh, sort of rejection of, of authority. But but he he thinks still that there is a way to to limit and, um, and and almost design the kind of regulation that the internet will be under in order to protect it. And then, then of course, um, he, he will specifically single out one 
one strand of legislation that he thinks encroaches on this space and spend many years of his active career combating what he feels is overreach from the copyright holders and specifically discuss copyright as a core core impediment for the kind of freedom to think, to remix, et cetera, that, that cyberspace contains. But re- returning to code then, uh, he, he, he has this modeling code of regulation that's become, uh, I think, more or less iconic. And most of the people who were around at the time unconsciously still apply it. It's not entirely new, but I think it's been enormously influential. Walk us through that. Yeah, so he, he creates this, um, again, a little bit of dualism, this sort of uh, opposition between East Coast Coast code is in U.S. terms and West Coast code. So, essentially, the East Coast code being the the traditional legal way of doing things, and West Coast code being uh, the new Silicon Valley or internet way of doing things. Uh, and so, he creates a sort of opposition between those uh, two models. Uh, and you know, it's kind of pretty apparent as you read it that the West Coast one is cooler, uh, but more complex and more difficult. <laughs> and then, and then within that, he he sort of um, tries to identify four different forces that that actually then frame the rules that we apply. So instead of regulation being something that a parliament or a congress or somebody sort of writes and applies, which is a sort of pretty unidimensional uh, way of directing things, uh, he, he has these four dimensions that he sees as uh, pushing on things. So there is still the traditional law. You know, lawmakers will write law and that will uh, have an impact. He pulls out norms, which actually I find the most interesting one uh, of all of these. So, so what what's people's expectations? What are they expecting uh, the internet? How do they expect it to work? What do they expect it to do? Uh, then he looks at market forces, and again, I think uh, interesting when you sort of look at it there that there's an assumption that market forces are new and are entering into the scene at this stage. And today, actually, yeah. if you look at most <clears throat> of the discussion that we have. Uh, it's based on an assumption like surveillance, capitalism, all of this is based on the assumption that the market has utterly corrupted the internet and market forces are driving it in, in, in negative directions. And then the last one is architecture, which is the code itself. How, how are things built? So, so he's gone from saying, look, you know, how behavior will work is based on there's a law. Although, as anyone who sort of works in politics knows, um, uh, laws rarely actually change behavior. <laughs> they uh, they uh, sort of prohibit things that don't necessarily mean that people behave very differently. Um, but that that's the traditional model, the legal model, East Coast law, East Coast code, off we go, we do that. And then this new model where these four forces may be pulling in the same direction or maybe pulling in different directions, but depending on the mix of law, norms, architecture and market forces you will get some kind of settlement and i think that uh, i mean i certainly found that in in 1999 when this came out i was newly elected i was elected in 97 to the uk parliament and i was sort of trying to find frameworks for how we deal with stuff and it seemed really obvious to me that it wasn't just like you pass a law (laughs) and it'll work um and so this model this more complex richer model was like hugely helpful in trying to think things through and try to understand what's actually happening as opposed to the theoretical model of legislators where you know we pass a law everything changes is the sort of classic uh, model that you work to yeah i agree i i first read it in um i was actually in menlo park uh, at the time working for the swedish office of science and technology and bought it at kepler's which is a local bookstore there i remember reading it 
sitting outside in the sunshine with a coffee and just being blown away. I thought it was, I, I, I really, you know, I, I hadn't read a lot about regulatory theory, etc. But I thought it was, I thought it was profound. And this notion that what he was trying to do was also to reveal code and architecture as a prime regulator, that, that he wanted to sort of bring it into the open, that the way we design our architecture, the way we design the code, and he then thought that it would be influenced by commercial forces, as you say, and that those would corrupt the design, really has a regulatory effect. Market law and norms were fairly well known. If you'd sort of gone to law school, you were familiar with that way of thinking. But he was trying to bring in code and architecture and show how, how it really had this regulatory effect. And it's interesting because when you when you then start to, to sort of trace or track or look at the history of ideas here, this is this is not a new idea. He is applying and, and he sort of he references this. He's applying a, an old tradition that, that goes back to people like Langdon Winner, who, who wrote this epic paper called um, Do Artifacts Have Politics? Mm. Uh, which is a it's it's a brilliant piece in which he he sort of goes through how architecture and artifacts can really restrict. And, and he uses this, I think, the most well-known example of all in the, in the science of technology studies uh, is the bridges or the underpasses to the beaches in New York designed uh, to not admit buses, which meant that you could effectively discriminate by having these low underpasses so that nobody who was poor, and this was often uh, African-Americans, uh, could go to the beaches because the buses just couldn't pass under those underpasses. And and sort of you, you can see how he sort of reaches back at this and he talks about architecture and code and then tries to bring that in. And it, it is a bit of a revelatory um, uh, sort of expose of look, all of this code that's uh, underpinning the internet actually also is regulating you, and I think that's that's remained. That's sort of a theme that we're now facing when we talk about algorithmic complexity or algorithmic uh, regulation or transparency, and so that. Uh, early heuristics of suspicion that sort of Lessig introduces is actually one of the strongest, I would argue, legacies that he's left behind. This notion that there is something in that code that's regulating me. I need to know what it is. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, again, I think you're right. The, the interesting thing is, um, I think many of the Silicon Valley people would be technological determinists. They kind of, kind of we've built this technology. It is unregulatable by design. And therefore, like governments back off, <laughs> you know, the technology will win and this is never going to be regulated. And, and I think what, um, what Lessig did nicely was sort of, sort of bring a sense of that in, but, but sort of temper it. So, so, uh, he is absolutely saying, yes, the code matters. The way you build things matter, but not as a technological determinist to say, well, that's it. That's the end of the story. You've built it this way and job done. He, he's, he's nicely sort of marrying that and saying, um, it is really important, but these other forces equally are important, and and they all interact on each other. And so the way that you build the code, uh, and this is the bit I say I find fascinating. I think that the way that code is built frequently reflects norms uh, it, to a greater degree than people think. And actually, sometimes it also very you know specifically reflects laws. Um, so that takes us away. You know, in a true technological determinist world, you would you would where code is supreme, you would kind of go, well, we we can just ignore you know all of the norms and laws and build what we want. Um, but that's not the case. There's, I think they're all interacting on each other. And I think you're absolutely right that um, the, the sense that the market. Uh, well, the, the, there's a, there's all these different dimensions going on. There's norms and code. <laughs> so so companies are writing code to do things that people want in the way that they want to do them. There's market and code. P 
people are writing code in order to uh, make money, uh, frankly, and, and build businesses that will be successful. And then all of these will interact with each other. But but you're right. I think today we're very focused on the market code dimension. Uh, you have coded this in order to make more money. Um, and perhaps sometimes at the extent of losing some of these other dimensions that are taking place between all of these four forces. Uh, that market code dimension is the one that is critical. And the assumption is, you know, algorithms are driven entirely by market demands. Uh, and therefore, if we can look at the algorithm, it's going to reveal that um was to say i certainly in my experience i think that the the user norms consumer norms uh, are, are a sort of hugely powerful force on the way in which those algorithms are written um uh, sometimes they may coincide with the market um, forces other times they may not they may conflict with the market forces but it's all of them that we need to look at um uh, and yeah interesting here we're sitting here talking about it today and and maybe it is time to come back and say let's let's actually look at some of the problems we're talking about and on the episodes of this podcast in those dimensions uh, and that framework that ability to say let's look at these four forces uh, and weigh them up given that all of them are probably acting on a particular problem at a particular time uh, it's not none of them are exclusive um but you know on privacy and data use how is the law in, in, impacting on decisions that companies are making versus norms versus market forces versus you know requirements that the code has or, or architectures that are workable or not workable I think it's also interesting when you look at, at the sort of the four regulators, another dimension that, that sort of has been brought out in later discussions that I, I think is worthwhile thinking about is, you know, how are these rules or how are these regulators produced? Because there's only one of them that's actually produced under democratic conditions by elected officials, and that's law. Yeah. It's it's kind of a bleak picture that he's painting because it's only one single regulator that's democratically uh, decided upon and shaped. If you look at all of the others, though, if you look at norms, markets, and code, they're all produced in ways that are not open to democratic process. We don't vote on what code to use or what norms we have. We don't vote on prices. But there is an interesting difference between markets and norms and code. And that is that markets and norms are highly decentralized. There's, there's, you know, if you have a competitive market, and that's the sort of the, the, the base example, prices will be set on the basis of supply and demand. It's not going to be any one person who has influence over that. There's no power concentration. Norms, same thing. Norms, norms are extremely decentralized. It's really hard for a single individual to decide that I will now set a norm. That's that sort of, you have to be either um, a, an influencer, as they're called nowadays, or somebody who is sort of a really a pop star or somebody to have that normative power. But code is different because code in Lessig's analysis, and I'd, I'd like to challenge this, code in his analysis has a single producer who makes conscious choices about how that architecture will be uh, designed. But the, if you wanted to just complicate Lessig's theory a little bit and and make it more interesting, you could argue that it's not code, it's codes in the plural. It's architectures in the plural that are competing with each other. And so in reality, code is not as open to control as he suggests, because it's also something that happens in a decentralized way where different kinds of architectures, open source versus proprietary code, walled gardens versus um, open ecosystems, where there is sort of a, a, a great deal of decentralized coordination too. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, um, 
so yes, it is decentralized, but but there are examples of where um, through law uh, uh, and markets to an extent, you know, governments have tried to direct how the code is written. Now, I think the standout example is is uh, it's technically called the e-privacy directive and it's known as the cookie law um but you know this is very deliberate so anyone who uses the internet in the european union will be familiar with this that when they visit websites these boxes pop up asking them for various permissions related to to cookies that are these bits of code that are put on your computer when you frequently visit websites um and and that that was very explicit that the, the a law was passed to say uh, you must write your code in this way. You must write code. You you can't choose your architecture of how you want to deal with cookies anymore. You've got to write it in a particular way. And the law is actually very detailed. And there's been a bunch of court cases that sort of added to that. Um, and so you have law dictating code there quite explicitly. Um, market is pulling in the opposite direction market is is sort of pulling towards or market towards having more cookies because they they're part of the money making machine and i think norms in, in in that example are quite interesting the norms are um certainly this is my experience i think most people's you just click straight through these things and you don't care about them or find them you don't find them helpful if anything you find them kind of annoying i think that's the experience of of most people so i think Again, it, um, I, I, these concrete examples where you pull it out and you can look at the four forces sort of acting there. Law telling you how to build your architecture. And there are other examples where this may happen. For example, there's an ongoing debate about whether companies should be able to use end-to-end encryption in their services. Now, if you pass a law prohibiting end-to-end encryption, that is very explicitly legally regulating the architecture, the code, um, and so it is an attempt, actually, to your point, Nicholas, to, to get past that decentralization. It's sort of, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> uh, end-to-end encrypted services popping up everywhere. Cookies are popping up everywhere. Uh, we're finding it difficult to control it. Norms are not controlling it because people seem to you know, be okay with these things. So we will pass a law that explicitly tries to sort of pull all the code, all the architectures into um, some kind of common legislative framework. So I think there are, I'd say, examples where law aims to, di- to dictate the limits of code. <laughs> you can go so far. Uh, yes, you can use cookies, but if you're going to use them, here's some things, very specific things that you must do. Um, and in the case of something, again, to encryption, some of the pros are, yes, you can use it, but if you do, you must offer a backdoor to the security services. So again, a very sort of explicit direction of how to architect an end-to-end encrypted service. And I think you, you also put your finger on something else that's really important there, and that is the, the choice of regulator. If you're sort of looking at a situation and you want to figure out how to regulate it, the choice will really impact all of the different regulators and how they work also in the other direction. Lessig is focused on how these four regulate a specific object of regulation, but the use of any one of them actually then also spills over back. So to your point about the, the e-privacy directive, what happens is that there is a law mandating a certain kind of notification that leads to an erosion of the norm, you should really take care of what you do or what you click on on the web. So these these regulators are weakened or strengthened by the way that they're used in concert, the way that they're combined in different ways. So in in the case of of, uh, the cookie law, uh, the normative strength, the normative role in regulating privacy is actually weakened by... Uh, law trying to specifically tell you how to write your code. Uh, I think this is underestimated too. And part of a part of um, 
the sort of the discussion that that needs to happen post Lessig, I think, is look, this is not four arrows pointing to a center. This is a network of pressures in society, and depending on how we invest in a portfolio model, we will create different regulatory outcomes. And uh, if there's anything, I think, I mean, the the simple sort of the, the the simplified but also simplistic model that he uses was extraordinarily powerful, and because of that reason, I think maybe obscured some of the complexities, the network character of the regulation we're we're, we're facing. Um, but he he was also there's interesting because he he has give he has issued his book in a couple of different um, versions and one he actually uh, discusses this and he discusses the the question of uh, the lack of democracy when it comes to the design of code and he says that you know we we never have a public debate about how to design code and uh, seems to f- first you know, lament this fact and then then say that that's a peculiarity with code, that we just can't discuss how it's designed. But yet you're saying that's what we're doing, right? I think we do. And, that, and I think um, in a sense, quite a lot of code is, is private law sort of made uh, made by the companies in response to, to uh, pressures, norms from their user bases. And, and yes, it's, it's not democratic in the sense it's not been made by a, a legislative body. But there's a there is some uh, small d <laughs> democracy going on where a company is responding to pressure. And take another example, concrete example, where actually I think the forces are more closely aligned. It's um, on uh, terrorist content, certainly in the US and, and Western Europe, where I think the norms of the public are um, to be horrified by the idea that major platforms will be carrying content that, that promotes or supports uh, the kind of terrorists who've been attacking their their societies. Um, uh, the the companies have responded. They've changed their code in many cases, for example, to implement um, systems that will automatically catch uh, ISIS or an Al-Qaeda video and make sure it doesn't uh, get redistributed. Uh, there's been some market forces that they're, that uh, certainly advertisers who use those platforms are are very keen to make sure that the, the platforms remove that kind of content. And then law, in a sense, has sort of been following up, uh, uh, you know, um, tracking this closely, not not out of step, but tracking it so that you have um, bodies like the European Union who are now proposing sort of anti-terrorism uh, or anti-terrorist content legislation that uh, essentially would sort of make uh, legal that which is already happening on the platforms, these sort of super fast removals of, of flag terrorist content. So there, I think that's an interesting example where I think all four forces are pulling in the same direction and where the private law, the private code of the companies is ahead of the public law, but not misaligned with it. It's the same democratic pressure, the pressure that citizens are putting on their governments and that citizens are putting on the companies uh, is aligned. And so also for a moving in steps. So I, think, I think, again, we can look at examples where, where uh, yes, you can say on paper, you know, the law is not the thing that's driving this, um, uh, and therefore there's a democratic deficit. But in terms of people's understanding of what's going on, it's actually quite positive. And again, just another example that has been long debated is there's a body called the Internet Watch Foundation in the UK. And the Internet Watch Foundation receives reports of child abuse material and and passes those to platforms to get rid of it. Uh, and again, that's never been set up in law. It's an industry-run body. Uh, effectively, the industry funds it. 
but government supports it, government gives it its blessing. And we've had long debates over the years about, is that is that appropriate? Is it right that this is a private body and it's not the law? Well, it works. <laughs> you know, and so he's, sometimes you have these solutions that work really well. I, I think there is strong public support for them, um, but they haven't been legislated for. And I think that's different from the scenario, which I think a lot of legal scholars worry about, which is the code is doing something that people actively don't want. Uh, uh, you know, it's actually acting against the norms and, the, and their interests, uh, typically for market reasons. And, and that, I understand the democratic deficit there. I would question, you know, the extent to which we we should feel this is a terrible democratic deficit where there is alignment. It's just that the law, for whatever reason, has not caught up with what's actually taking place. I like this. I think you're describing a really interesting dynamic system. And I think one of the one of the hypotheses you could extract from what you're saying is that you can say, look, we have code, law, market, and norms. And the way societies work is that they will actually seek an equilibrium in which none of these are dominant. So if one of them is dominant, if it's code that regulates the situation to 80%, that will make people a little bit iffy, and they will look to get influence for norms, markets, and they will probably use law to get it. So you get a situation where this this particular technology might be regulated at a much more equal basis. It's not 80% code, it's 20% code, it's perhaps 30% um, uh, law, and you can go on and then sort of imagine the equilibrium. And one sort of general theory you can extract from your reading of Lessig there is that, that the way that tech policy will unfold, the way the legislative discussions will unfold, is to create more of an equilibrium between the regulatory forces so that no single regulatory force is dominant in the end. And if that's the case, I think that's that sort of explains, and if you look through that lens, you can see at the artificial intelligence debate, where it's felt that around 90% of the regulatory effect and agency is actually in the technology. And there's very little legal or market or norms uh, influence over how artificial intelligence actually evolves. And the debate we're in currently is how can we then move towards an equilibrium where there's more influence from the other regulatory forces? Is that a, is that, do you think that's right? I, I think it is. I think there is a temptation with every new technology to assume uh, technological dominance that then erodes over time. And actually in Lessig's book, he talks about a fear that the copyright lobby would um, manage to implement code or, or force code to be implemented that controls every single use of copyrighted content. And for him, that's a, a nightmarish negative scenario. And there was at that time, remember, the debate about different chips that would uh, be used for protection. We've talked before about this sort of mass push for code-based or architectural digital rights protection. Um, and that hasn't materialized, and we've discussed this in one of our other episodes, in quite that way. It's been uh, been much more sort of give and take and a much more, um, uh, much more scope for people uh, to follow the norms, follow the behaviors they want to follow, uh, albeit with uh, new mechanisms for providing compensation to rights holders. So it's sort of evolved more, more comprehensively. I actually think the same is going to happen with artificial intelligence. So the, the classic example in artificial intelligence that people are concerned around is uh, discrimination between different demographic groups. I think it's absolutely right. It's a, a legitimate concern. Um, but it's one that could be tempered by norms and law working together. Um, uh, you know, So if, for example, it's that you, you run a recruitment service and your recruitment service is continually discriminating against people from particular backgrounds uh, when they're being put forward for jobs, uh, 
if the public norm is we don't like that, we find that discriminatory, we're hostile to it. If the market force from employers is, hey, I'm really concerned that I'm getting now uh, uh, criticized because I'm using your service and your service appears to be discriminatory. If that pressure builds up, it's perfectly possible to pass a law uh, which would penalize those who who uh, implement discriminatory uh, algorithmically chosen candidates um it doesn't mean you're necessarily regulating the algorithm per se but you're regulating the outputs of the algorithm which is something that should be demonstrable and so again the regulator come in and say look we're going to put in 50 people with different names and different backgrounds into your system and if it the result of that, the selection process looks discriminatory, you've got a problem (laughs) and you're going to have to go and rewrite your algorithm. So I actually think a lot of the AI effects or the negative effects will get sorted out that way through norms, market forces, and then uh, they may be sufficient. You may not need the law in the end if those are uh, there, if employers are refusing to use a recruitment service that can't demonstrate that it's algorithms are not being discriminatory, then uh, that's in itself going to be a massively powerful regulator or driver on the algorithm. But ultimately, I think there may also be quite a lot of push towards law. Um, And so it may look more like the example I've given of the terrorism content where, you know, society is aligned, uh, then then, uh, there'll be a lot of solutions found and then legislation will effectively uh, put right those solutions that are already in the market into law and make them the standard. And I think if you sort of if you adopt this as a dynamic model, then it seems quite natural to argue that in the beginning, when you introduce a new technology, the way that technology regulates or affects society is going to be, you know, to to a dominant part, it's going to be in the design of the architecture of that technology, because that's what new technology means. We haven't seen it before. We haven't had the time to form norms, market behaviors, or laws around it. Then then you you sort of end up in a a really interesting and somewhat simplified uh, uh, model of what it is that you do as a tech policy professional. Because as a tech policy professional, you have this new technology coming in, you want to make sure that it's not regulated the smithereens, so you're first argument is going to go, well, you know, I think the market will sort this out. Or, you know, we'll have self-regulation. That's norms, right? Yeah. So so, so you're sort of arguing for a sequence in which you balance this new technology out with the other regulators. Essentially, your, your uh, first sort of basic line of argument is going to be, I oh, know, the market will sort this out. And then if that doesn't work, well, we'll set up self-regulatory institutions that will work as norms to sort this out. And then at the end, whatever's spillover uh, you're not able to manage or where there's sort of still a lot of regulatory capacity in that technology, legislators are going to step in and say, you know what, there's going to be law regulating the situation as well. And it, it, it sort of it neatly gives you another model of, of how, the, how the job is done. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, from a, um, and again, this is the popular perception is that uh, people who work for uh, tech companies who are threatened with regulation, their job is to say no <laughs> uh, repeatedly and forcefully. And, and you're right, in, in many cases, that is actually true because when the technology is nascent, you, you fear that early regulation would stop the technology growing. Uh, again, if we look back at our cookie example, people have different views about whether they do or don't like cookies, but if that regulation had come in right at the beginning, the cookie technology would never have taken off. It would have been too painful. As it was, it was kind of bolted on quite a long way later. And so so people are taking the pain of 
putting up these banners and clicking through them because the technology is established and is actually useful at the same time as exploring you know future alternatives but that would be an example to say if if the uh, and maybe the legislators would have preferred that if the day that cookies had been invented and started being used uh somebody had come in with a regulation like that it would have killed the technology right at the beginning um and so again from tech company point of view that is your biggest concern that you've built something you think it's good and the regulation will will stop it now it does open up the question i think is is a, a question sort of runs through politics generally which is look how many mistakes and how serious do those mistakes need to be before the law catches up uh, how dangerous is something uh, again the cookie example might be one that there will be people and you're listening to this who feel that, that that's that, you know when i described how they could have killed the technology early on with legislation they're going damn we you know we missed the opportunity because they feel that is a, a very privacy invasive and, and bad technology um but in other instances again we look at, at um, some of the bad content that goes around uh, we had this awful, awful attack that took place in New Zealand where the terrorist live-streamed uh, the attack that took place. Again, um, you know, that was a risk. I think it was a known risk that when you put a live-streaming technology out that people will use it for horrible purposes. Was that a sufficient risk uh, to say, look, you can't offer live-streaming unless and until we have some sort of legal regulated solution in place. So I think many of the questions we face in tech policy are, are uh, sort of about when, not whether, something's going to be regulated. It is going to be regulated eventually. But from the company point of view, I think they'll say, please not yet, and please allow us the space to make some mistakes. And from a government point of view, and sometimes a societal point of view, it's going to be, whoa, you know, no, those mistakes are too serious um, either you have to kind of hold back on the technology or we're going to rush in and and create a law, regulate it, even before we kind of fully understand uh, all of the dynamics in play. Uh, you guys in the companies want to allow this to play out. We, we want to control it earlier on. Um, so I think that is a classic dynamic for lots of the technologies that we've worked on. I think that's right. And I think that you can also, as a technology company, choose a little bit how you this, how you launch your technologies and then test them against the different regulators. One of the interesting examples there, and I think this is a minority example, but it really fascinated me, was uh, the way Google Glass was released. Because if you looked how the sort of very conscious, I think, release plan there was to release it in small batches and have people use it and then see what the reaction was, knowing that somebody walking into a bar with a camera on their face might, might actually be perceived as violating norms. So there was a suspicion there that the, the norms... I don't know why that would be, Nicholas. I think it feels perfectly normal. Uh, everyone has their mobile phone <laughs> and they have cameras everywhere. Anyway, so, and it ended up with, and you you know this and, and, and I've probably laughed at this, it ended up with this, uh, this very clear normative signal where you could find signs in bars saying no glass holes, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which, you know, it, which gave you a fairly clear normative idea of what was going on here. And, and, and so I think that the way you release your technology actually allows you to test against the different regulators in different ways. And, and one, of the, one of the ways in which you can sort of use Lessig today is to say that if you're working in tech policy, what you want to do is you want to explain to your principal, to your company, to the engineers at your company, that look, uh, we have this technology, it's transformative, it has an enormous amount of, of social impact. The way that social impact will be moderated will really uh, matter, but it will be moderated. And I would suggest to you that we should release it in such a way that we first 
get a chance to moderate it with um, norms and then see what the market can do as not to trigger the legal regulation too quickly. But that will come and we should figure out what residue we believe really believes really sits in the law. You can, you can almost imagine somebody planning this out and sort of giving a visual saying, here's, here's how we should do this. And there, there is, I just wanted to get back to your example. I don't think, so the cookies example is, is hypothetical, but there are real examples of when the legal element, the legal regulator used too early actually really killed off a technology. And my favorite example is the directive on, el- on electronic signatures in the European Union. Um, which I think by specifying exactly how they should be used and having really rigid technical conditions delayed the introduction of electronic signatures in the European Union by years, if not decades. And I think that the way that electronic signatures work is largely outside of the framework of that legislation as well. It just created an enormous amount of legal certainty that we couldn't do it that way. <laughs> and so that was that was an example of how if a technology slips, and in that case it slipped because security was felt to be so important through all of the market and norms and then immediately hits on uh, legislation, that's going to be really complicated. It's interesting to contrast with the US where they essentially said that, you know, if you're signing with the intention of signing, it's a signature. That was the sort of the gist of the legislation there, which meant that they gave the initiative back to norms yes. saying, you know, figure it out through norms. That's how we should do this. And then the market came up with a ton of solutions and they haven't changed their Digital Signature Act or the sort of legislation around that since. So I think there's there's a real instructive example looking at cases like this to see how the sequence of regulators really impacts the success and reception of a technology. Yeah, and I think in another one I've seen that vein uh, is uh, electronic identity or identity verification, which, again, Lessig t- talks quite a lot about in the book, and I think he's ahead of his time in, in sort of flagging that as a key issue. But you're right, there's another area where you know legislation could say, thou shalt use this particular sort of expensive and difficult from a tech point of view, a form of identity. And if it does that, it, it may end up being counterproductive <clears throat> to the goal. If the goal is, you know, stronger authentication and verification, um, uh, that there are methods uh, that people use. I think it actually in Scandinavia, there's a lot of uh, using bank identity systems. So so right. rather than government identity systems, the bank identity systems are, are great. Uh, they have the, the wonderful advantage that you use them every day, whereas government ID you tend to use much less uh, frequently, which is a real problem with it. But, you know, again, to, to piggyback on the norm, the norm being that people are comfortable using bank ID and they can get comfortable using that secure bank ID for other services is great. If you come along with a, a legal solution that says, no, 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 you must use some government identity system, which is say people use once a year to fill in their tax return and then they forget the details for the other 364 days, you're actually going to end up doing things in a counterproductive way. So I think it's really important, um, you're right, when the legislation is made and crucially uh, whether it does take account of what's actually happening out there as opposed to uh, creating a sort of theoretical model that, that um, again, on paper looks more democratic. It looks more democratic to say we're going to use the government-issued ID rather than banking ID, which is private sector and maybe favours people with bank accounts, blah, blah, blah. You can see all the reasons why you might uh, construct a democratic argument for the electronic ID. But if that is way out of step with what people are actually doing, 
uh, as you describe for electronic signatures, is going to end up setting you back. And better would be to figure out a way that you can build on what's out there, uh, extend it, deal with issues of unbanked people, deal, deal with any other issues that you've got, uh, rather than sort of starting all over again with a legal solution that is um, not not necessarily the the optimal model. It's interesting because if you if we go back to Lessig, what he argues is that um, uh, you know he says essentially look at these regulatory forces. Currently, code is regulating a lot of the internet and keeping it open. We should expect that with increasing commercial importance of the internet, there will be more legislation, and that legislation will shut down the uh, open space, this this sort of new space that we have created in ways that that uh, we will not like. We need to stop that. But what we're saying is the way we're reading Lessig now is saying that was always going to happen. Uh, because you need to reach the state of equilibrium between the regulators. You can't have code regulating an outsized part of society because that's not stable. That's not a stable state for society to be in. So the question is more... You know, if you go back to Lessig, how much of this could have ended up in norms? How much of this could have ended up in markets? And how could we make sure that the legislation didn't shut down the ability to create new code? Because that's the other thing, right? This entire system, the way it works, also has an impact. And this, we sort of, we, we get closer and closer to, to Jonathan Satrain's idea of the generative internet. Mm. It also has an impact on the next innovation. If regulation uh, is too harsh and cuts off too many different uh, technological pathways, then what happens is that you slow down the overall pace of innovation. And this is an overused argument saying you threaten innovation today. If you, if you say that a le- piece of legislation threatens innovation today, you're getting laughed out of the room in Brussels, yes. I think, because uh, arguably we should sort of admit our mistakes. I think the tech industry overused that particular line of argument. But but there's some truth to it too, right? That you can yeah. you can imagine a world in which you, sorry, you cut off yeah, these, yeah, these no, no, pathways. I was going to say there, there certainly is, and um, again, I think it's one of these dimensions that we've teased out a few times where there's a transatlantic cultural divergence. In that, I uh, certainly get the sense that in the US, again, not just related to our kind of technology, but whether that's genetically modified foods or uh, new forms of uh, uh, medical treatments, that the US has a much more um, uh kind of let's try it out uh, allow people to do something uh, approach and then if it turns out to be risky we'll step in and regulate it in europe i think we are much much more inclined to the well can you prove it's safe before we let you do it and i say genetically modified foods is sort of a different kind of technology and people may have very strong views on it but but you see that marked difference between the two approaches the eu will say we'll have a moratorium until We've you know done years of tests, so we can prove this stuff is safe, and the U.S. will sort of just go for it, <laughs> and then and then may course correct later on. Um, so again, critical in these debates is is uh, understanding where you're coming from, understanding your risk tolerance, and and I I'm, I've had those because I'm sure you have where you're coming from these different perspectives. You're saying, look, there's this wonderful thing we can build. Uh, you know, we would be foolish not to build it, and you're talking to somebody who thinks well, there's a 3% chance that it could go wrong, we would be really foolish to build it. <laughs> and so you're, you're coming for a completely different approach. You're seeing the same technology through completely different lenses because you have these different approaches to risk. And I suspect most of us who've gone to work for innovative companies, particularly sort of US Silicon Valley companies, we're in the, hey, take some risk uh, and then fix things later camp. We're often dealing with other people who are in the, 
please prove it safe before you go ahead camp. Um, and that's a crucial distinction, I think. Yeah, it's it's almost there. There are there are whiffs there of a Kantian versus uh, utilitarian, a sort of uh, a deontological versus a teleological ethic, right? So you're sort of thinking about outcomes and you're calculating what you think can be the net benefit. And there are people who just say there are certain things you absolutely cannot do. Yeah. You have a duty not to do them. And I think there is there is a really interesting difference. I think that to a very large degree, tech policy in the European Union has a Kantian flavor to it, uh, which is paradoxical because Kant also told us to sapere auda, dare to know, right? To go forth and be enlightened and explore the world. But there is there is this sort of, oh, but there are certain things you shouldn't do. The, the sort of categorical imperative is distantly related with the precautionary principle. So I think there is there is something there that's quite interesting too. Now, uh, one of the other things that's really interesting with Lessig is that Lessig, Lessig's model is not only is it sort of static in the sense that these four regulatory forces are working uh, on the regulated object or our society uh, at the same time, and he doesn't discuss much how there is like a flow between them, but he also doesn't discuss uh, the longitudinal dimension um, you know how, how is this changing over time because if you look at it if you look at for example um the 17th century or the 18th century, you could argue that there was almost no architectural power, but there was tons of legislative power, a little bit of market power, and a little bit of normative power. But the balance between these regulators over time has shifted a lot, which means that, you know, as we are thinking about the longer future and speculating about what the world will look like in, in uh, 20 or 30 years, you have to ask the question, will we be able still to translate the kind of architectural power we're creating in technology into market power norms and legislation? Or will that be increasingly hard as the complexity of technology increases and the ungovernability of technology increases? Is the long arc of the four regulators that Lessig lays out actually weighted towards code? And should we expect code to regulate more and more, even though there is you know, persistent calls for more of an equilibrium between the regulators. So so I think some of the forces have been there. I mean, when, um, you know, when they built the railway system or the canal system, you know, way back when, or, or even the turnpike road systems that allow people to travel, these were sort of architectural changes that had profound impacts. Uh, The code of transport changed over time, or when they introduced, you know, different forms of technology for making cloth, uh, printing press are the other sort of examples. So there have always been examples, but I think the, there are two crucial differences now. One is the speed. Uh, uh, so many of these changes took place over decades, so there was time for the law to catch up. And now these changes are happening so fast. And that I think that, uh, again, uh, having sat on both sides, there's this massive disjuncture between the speed at which the code moves and the speed at which legislation moves. Um, and again, the come back to our favorite cookie example i'm sure that people were worried about cookies actually at the beginning of when they first started appearing but it took four or five years to translate those worries into legislation by which time the technology become firmly established and so we're continually seeing this sort of uh, uh, time gap so legislation is slow and we need to figure out a way to legislate things that are fast moving that um, uh, is uh, going to have to be different. It's hugely challenging for legislators. Again, do they do they rush into it? It's one way. Do they do they do quick legislation? But generally speaking, 
rushed legislation is seen as poor legislation and and that's been experienced in in many fields do they um create some kind of forum where they engage as legislators but don't actually write anything down uh, for two or three years and i'd argue that's sort of what's happened around the terrorism content they 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 have not leg- rushed to legislate but they have not been disengaged uh, they've been engaged throughout the process as as things are developing um through that uh, that's another model another model is seed more to the executive <laughs> so the legislate legislation becomes um framework legislation it says you know we uh, the government has the power to regulate financial services but the primary legislation which is the thing that's slow doesn't try and spell out how you're going to regulate financial services that's left to the executive to make much quicker decisions and we again we see some of that in in the latest um, privacy regulation the general data protection regulation there's a number of um, hooks in there for the commission and and other data protection bodies to kind of take faster action than going back to uh, a three or four year legislative process so speed absolutely critical and and say so that i think has not been fully worked out yet how does law work with fast-moving technologies. And then the second crucial one is this geography question, which again comes up in in, in the um, code book and comes up repeatedly, and we've discussed repeatedly, that uh, old-fashioned rollouts of technology, I'd argue in, in some senses they um, uh, certainly are f- uh, driving countries to adopt them. So it's interesting that uh, no country in the world has rejected technologies like the motor vehicle. Um, so there are technologies that are so compelling that everyone's going to adopt them. But the adoption uh, can be regulated within national boundaries. So when people adopt the motor car, uh, you know, there is, there's physical stuff happening. And if a government wishes to regulate it, they can do so. Um, with a lot of the internet services, it's almost like, you know, everybody is adopting the motor car, which has a profound impact on your society. Um, but all the, it's all coming from outside. There's no way that you can control it at your borders. Um, so those are the, I think the two really profound questions, uh, for legislators, the first being speed, how to keep up with the technology. And the second being geography, how to deal with people adopting a technology essentially that's being beamed into your country where you have very little ability to to manage anything at the border or control it geographically. And I think I would add complexity to that because yeah. I think that as it becomes harder and harder to understand these technological systems, it's going to be harder and harder to regulate them as well. And I, I think I'm I think that's generously assuming that our policymakers will will get to grips with the complexity. So that's that sort of uh, an assumption that's on my part. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, I I think that these systems increasingly will be complex enough even for their uh, engineers not to be fully uh, uh, transparent. So it will be more tricky. But but and and, and sort of what it's suggests over time is that there is going to be more and more power situated in code uh, as new technologies come faster as they're rolled out uh, in a way that makes it hard to regulate them geographically as i think at least uh, they're they're more complex um and that that could then turn to to uh, i mean if we see the kinds of responses that we're seeing early signs of right now in european legislation one of the instincts there is to go ex ante 
to say, okay, we have to approve these technologies before they are actually released into the market. It's it's sort of a it, it's go directly to law, skip norms and market, and uh, if you cannot sort of get approval, we're not going to let this happen. Which means that the model for technology regulation risks morphing a little bit more with the model of of pharmacological uh, research or or the pharma industry. Um, are there different kinds of regulatory regimes like that that you think will that the technology industry will evolve into. So I think you're right that that will be the import controls are the are the way uh, that governments can really assert control. Um, you know, they're not licensing something for import. And again, the the assumption of the mid '90s and the original cyberspace uh, um, independence de- declaration was that that you could not apply import controls to the internet or to cyberspace. And one thing I think that we are increasingly seeing, and we've discussed before, is through things like app stores in particular, you can very much, I think, now certainly steer a national market. There may be holes, there may be routes around for enterprising uh, people to get around any kind of import control, but you can apply pretty broad brush import controls, particularly if you're controlling you know, for example, a government could say, we want to approve certain types of apps before they get into the Android and iOS app store for use in my country. And that will actually have a, quite a significant effect for the vast majority of their population who just use standard app stores on standard devices. Say so others will get round, but it's a pretty strong import control. So I think that is one area they're looking at. And however you want to describe it, that's how it is. So it's effectively saying, you cannot bring my technology into this country, into my country, without my permission. Um, and that may be a tool that governments increasingly want to use. It then does beg the question, how do they do that assessment and how do they uh, uh, manage to, I guess, not just from a technical point of view, but from a sort of fairness and keeping in, in touch with the norms of their uh, a population how do they uh, effectively decide what comes in and out or what's allowed in and what's not allowed in again come back to something like um, end-to-end encrypted services uh, it would be relatively straightforward from a legal perspective for a government to say we're prohibiting this range of services from being offered in app stores for people in our country if the people in the country desperately want to use those services and they're using them on mass that potentially creates a conflict between law and norms uh, that government would have to resolve. So import controls, I think, are an interesting tool, but they they don't sort of uh, act as a way of completely avoiding uh, or, or voiding, rather than avoiding, voiding these other forces, because I'd argue that where a government applies an import control that's against the established norms of their population's internet usage, they're going to face a challenge. Um and so these are the dynamics, I think, that are going to play out. But the new tool on the block is, is this notion, which I think was inconceivable in the 1990s, that, um, as I say, g- governments in open countries, open societies, would seek to restrict applications uh, on the basis of law, uh, local law. You know, that was something that was associated only with governments in closed societies, but now is being something increasingly considered by governments in open societies. 
I think that it's it's really interesting. I think the uh, other aspect of that that I'd like to highlight is that I think when law and norms get into conflict, that actually generates new code. Yeah. Um, we see it most clearly in the copyright case, where the normative view of copyright was very different than the legal view, and you could see the evolution of peer-to-peer networks, etc., BitTorrent. And I think I think that this is the other way that these different regulators act together. When there's a conflict between, for example, law and norms, it creates a vacuum into which code will step or markets will step. And I think that's that's another thing that we'll probably see more of. And I don't think, I mean, if there's something that that you could um, uh, not fault Lessig for, but would you would like to see more from him, I think, is this question of the interplay between the regulators as they come into conflict with each other. Because I think there's a great deal to be done there. Now, uh, in, in wrapping up, I thought it would be interesting to think about what is it, what in Lessig is it that we, we sort of feel or experience has changed the most? The model is still very fruitful to discuss as we've done and the model that sort of the central model of his work but what is it that feels feels most out of date i think i have two candidates for you and i'm interested in what you think the first one is this notion of code in the singular which i still feel is is not the way that architecture work i think architecture is polycentric there are several different models of architecture and they are competing with each other which means that you will have an open source solution you will have a decentralized network and that's going to continue and be driven even more by conflicts between the other regulators. The second is the dualism. I think that when we read Lessig today, it feels almost quaint to read about cyberspace as this sort of special domain. It, I think almost all tech policy today starts from a much more monistic ontology, if you will, where there's a society and technology exists in that society as an integral part of it not as as a specific domain. And I think that will be even more true for the future. Those are those are the two things where I feel that uh, as you read Lessig today, you you sort of you read it through a different lens. What would you say? Yeah, I, I mean, I, your second one, I I really like, and I think he he revisited it himself, didn't he? In I think two thousand and six, uh, with Code Two to sort of reflect on that. I think we've learned um, uh, that that is the key lesson that we've learned that the internet is not other, cyberspace is not a different space. Um, you know, everything on the internet, the internet itself and everything that flows across it, these are human artifacts. Um, the, the end points have people either physically present or controlling and designing those endpoints. And so the, this otherness, I think, is, is the, is the thing that has really changed over time. But I say, I think that was a very current view in the 1990s. It was a very common view. It's a very optimistic view in a lot of ways. Um, uh, or idealistic view, um, but I think now we are seeing that you know the, the 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 internet does not exist outside of ourselves. It is part of our daily lives, um, and therefore needs when when you come to think about regulating it, you're actually thinking about regulating our daily lives. You're thinking about regulating things like discrimination, <laughs> uh, whereas in the AI example earlier, um, or you know law enforcement surveillance when we think about end-to-end encryption. These are, or uh, at the advertising market uh, when you're thinking about cookies. So we express them as regulating technologies. They're not. They're regulating human activities that take place through the medium of technology. And when you think of it in those terms, of course they're going to be regulated. Why would you know uh, human activity, uh, because it's enabled by technology, sort of be outside of any framework that we would otherwise have for regulating a human activity? Um, so that's where we're going. I think that's where we are, and I think that that is the thing for me. That sort of when I look back to 
everything that was written sort of in the 90s in this space that i think has changed most profoundly is that is that uh, mainstreaming and that understanding it's just part of everything we do i like that i think that that's i think that's a pretty profound change as well that sort of you're not regulating technology you're regulating human action you're not regulating a new space you're regulating use and i think that's a that's a really i think that's a very strong good point for us to to end this classic session on um, um, I hope you have enjoyed our uh, reading or misreading of Larry Lessig, and there will be more of these sessions. Uh, you can find the, the podcast at Rich's website, which is www.regulate.tech. And as always, any comments, thoughts, or ideas that you have, please send them our way. We uh, love getting them, and uh, we hope to uh, um, have you with us next week. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>